0: David Marinus, when did you decide to name your book A Good American Family?
1: It wasn't the first title of the book. Um, for a long time, I, I was calling it Judgment in Room 740, which is the courtroom in Detroit where the House un American Activities Committee conducted its hearings in 1952 on communism in the Detroit area. But I realized that, that as I was writing the... I mean, that was early on in the process... You know, I wanted to. I knew that I wanted to f- bring a lot of people into that room—not just my father, but and my family, but but the chairman of the committee and the the uh, FBI informant. And so uh, that was the nexus of the piece. But in the end, it really was more more. You know, it's not a memoir in a sense. It's partly that, but it's more history. But but I knew that that once I came across the uh, quote from. Charles Potter, a congressman from Michigan who expressed surprise that uh, a, someone from a good American family could be a member of the Communist Party at any point. I said, that's it. I mean, that, because I knew my family was a good American family in every possible way. And so I wanted sort of that tension and that juxtaposition to define the book.
0: I want to put up on the screen your mother and father and tell us when this picture was taken. And uh, when you look at them, what do you think about?
1: Oh, that was taken in 1944. My father was on leave. He was in the Army. It was during World War II. Um, they <laughs> I think about how beautiful my mother was, first of all. Um, but also, um, you know, my dad was already going through a tough time, but but he he didn't show it much. I mean, he... He'd been a radical at the University of Michigan. Um, the the U.S. Army had, had already, uh, the intelligence division of the U.S. Army had already investigated him because uh, he was applying for, uh, he wanted to be an officer. Um, he made it to become an officer, and, and right after this, he went off to Camp Lee, Virginia um, to command an all-black unit Salvage and repair unit. And and, um, so, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, this is at the early part of their lives before they had the four kids. um, And um, they were idealistic, I would say.
0: When did you discover that both your mother and father were at one point communists?
1: You know it was always in the background of our lives, but never in the forefront because uh, he was called before the committee when he was when I was two I wasn't conscious um, by the time I would say I was sort of aware of the world around me. Uh, we had moved to Madison I was seven years old I mean I certainly had memories before that, but nothing really sticking strongly about our family unit so um it was, he had already reinvented himself. He'd moved on. So had my mother, and, and it was, wasn't talked about in our family. So it was in the background. Uh, occasionally, he might say something that alluded to that era, but never in any specifics. I had tried to interview him maybe 30 years ago about parts of it, and he really sort of avoided it. Um, so it wasn't—and and then I started thinking about it more, but I knew I wasn't going to write about it until they were gone. Um, And then, as I reported the book, I think I say in the early part of the book that I've spent my career studying strangers until they become familiar to me. And here were people who were very familiar to me, and I was worried that they'd become more strangers as I went deeper and deeper into their lives. Most people... um, You know, what they know about their families is sort of the family stories and mythology, but they don't have a biographer going deep into studying what really happened. And here I was doing that with my own family. So I learned more and more about their their involvement in the Communist Party as young people as I reported this book.
0: What would have been the years that they were communists?
1: Well, I would say... um, My mother was a member of the Young Communist League as a young student at the University of Michigan. My father was not, but he was definitely a leftist. Um, And then um, after he came back from the war, uh, I would say from 1946 to 1952. You say that you're not quite
0: sure in your book what they ever saw in the Soviet Union. how can you be? (laughs) Did did, did they like the idea of the Soviet Union, and why?
1: Well, I think they liked the, uh, my father at one point says he was stubborn in his ignorance. Um, I think they liked the egalitarian idea. I think that my father in particular and my mother to some extent was shaped by what he saw as the economic uh, inequalities that grew out of the Great, that were more obvious during the Great Depression, when and the whole notion of capitalism was being questioned more strongly because of what had happened with the collapse of that system. Um, and I think that the stubbornness and his ignorance was not seeing the 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 uh, paranoia and murderous uh, history of the Soviet Union until later. Newspaper man, when did he lose his first job and why? He was fired uh, The in... February 29, 1952, during those hearings, when an FBI informant uh, called the grandmother spy, Berenice Baldwin, um, was called to testify. She'd been a member of the Communist Party, a paid informant for the FBI from, I think, 1943 to 1952 when she came in from the cold. Everybody in the party knew her. She testified. She... She named names. Um, the point of those hearings was really to investigate the United Auto Workers and the communists in that in the union. But there were a lot of other people who were collateral damage, you might say, and my father was one of those.
0: House Un-American Activities Committee, 1938, abolished in 1975.
1: Yeah, it was a part of American history. And um, one of the central questions of my book is, what is un-American? What does it mean to be American? The chairman of that committee uh, during in 1952 was a Georgian, John Stevens Wood, who had voted against every civil rights bill that came through Congress, had briefly been a member of the Ku Klux Klan, had some other dark parts of his past, calling my father, who'd been the commander of an all-black unit in World War II, un-American. Where's he from? He's from uh, the northern Georgia. Um, grew up on a farm, and then became a lawyer in Canton, Georgia, um, and um, was uh, for briefly uh, worked the the North Georgia Circuit um, as a as a judge, and was a lawyer, um, and then got elected to Congress from from that congressional district up there.
0: You highlight a fellow named Tavener.
1: Frank Tavener was. Uh, really, an interesting guy. He was the uh, the committee counsel for the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1952. Had had been a counsel be- uh, in, der- earlier during the period when the f- more famous uh, investigation of, of communists in in Hollywood was conducted. Um, he had came from uh, Woodstock, Virginia, out in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, he was sort of a product of the bird machine out there um, and in World War right after World War II he served as the acting general counsel for the U.S. mission at the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal um, sort of trying uh, the uh, Japanese who were responsible for the atrocities in World well, War well, It's II. interesting
0: because we're going <clears throat> through listening to this sure. idea of having a counsel interview somebody yes. uh, from the committee <laughs> and in this case he was counsel and he asked your father?
1: He did all the questioning. Well, I mean, the committee members would participate as well, but most of the the tough questioning was done by the committee council. That was the way it worked at HUAC. Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment is the right, uh, you, you can invoke the Fifth Amendment to not testify against yourself. Um, it's written into the, the, you know, the Constitution of the United States, the, and it's, uh, the, you know, the and it's uh and yet historically um uh, people have used the Fifth Amendment uh as a or they've defined it by saying, well, that means you're guilty um, The point is not whether you're guilty or innocent; it's whether you have the right not to be browbeaten into confessing. How often did your father use that uh, I didn't count the number of times, but it, almost most not all of the questions but But he certainly used it to not testify not only against himself, but to name any other names or testify against anyone else as he was uh, interrogated. So, When you
0: started this project, where did you go to find the things that you needed to write this book?
1: Well, I went to so many places. Um, But one of the first places I went was the National Archives, right down the street. And uh, the people there were terrific, and uh, all of the uh, House and American Activities Committee records are open now. It's you know it's a congressional committee, um, and um, the archivists there helped me find what I needed in terms of that week or two weeks of hearings, and within those files, there was a one file that was for Elliot Marinus, my father. Um, before that, because it was a public hearing in Detroit. I'd long known about the transcript, and in the transcript, my father says, um, I have a statement I'd like to read. And the chairman would, um, does not allow him to read the statement. Um, He might have let him, he probably would have let him read it if my father had uh, confessed to his sins and sought absolution and named names, but he didn't, and so therefore he was not allowed to read that statement. So... I thought, well, you know, where is that statement? I'd love to see it. What did he say? And the moment that I found it in his file uh, was one of the most powerful, it was the most powerful moment of my experiences reporting this book. And it just washed over me for the first time. Here I was in my mid-60s. I this was a central part of my family's sort of backstory. Um, I never really allowed myself, or "allowed" oh, is the wrong word. I never really focused before that moment on what my father had endured, um, and seeing that statement, um, and one particular part of it, which which was, uh, it starts by saying "statement of Elliot Marinus," and the S in statement, a capital S, jumps up a half space, and People who remember the era of typewriters remember that keys would stick and sometimes they'd move up a half space. And it was that moment of seeing it that brought made it real to me because I knew my dad. I'd seen him type, hunt and peck typist for years and years, and I knew that he, you know, he, he he typed really hard and keys would stick. And that was it. That was me sort of finally putting myself in my father's place at that moment.
0: Specifically and I'm open to page two eighty eight where you print this statement. Yes. Specifically where did you find it and how long did it take you to find it?
1: I wish I could cite the exact box number and file number. I it's in the book, but I um it was it was it was in the files of the UAC hearing in Detroit at the National Archives up in their research room. Um and it was right there. At the National Archives in Detroit? No, no, I'm sorry. The the downtown Downtown, Washington, D.C. archives has all of the congressional HUAC files. And it was one of the first things I found among all of the documents that I uncovered uh, doing this. So he was 34 years old right? the day that
0: he testified and wanted to read the statement, and the chairman said no. No. Were Was the family, how big was the family at that time, and did he have a job?
1: He had just been fired um, a week earlier um, from the Detroit Times, a Hearst newspaper in Detroit, where he was the lead rewrite man on the copy desk, uh, which was a different job in that era than it is today, where he'd take all the feeds from reporters and put it into English and write the stories. Um, And um, so he didn't have a job. Um, he um, the family was I was two and a half um, my older sister Jeannie was uh, five and Jim was almost seven my older brother and of course my mother so it was a family of five at that point um, and we were living in Detroit in a, a flat uh, in, in in Detroit and I don't. I don't remember it. I don't. You know. I, the first thing I say in this book is I, I have no memory of that day. My brother Jim remember it. He does very much so. Yeah, Jim. First of all, Jim, my older brother is. Both my brother and sister are two of the smartest people I've ever known in my life, and Jim, has not a photographic memory, but a very very sharp memories of certain things. Um, he can recite any poem that he's ever read. That sort of stuff, um, but. He was traumatized by this period, uh, much more so than I I mean he and Jeannie, my sister were in school, and so th- the five years that followed this event um they were bouncing from one school to another as my father was trying to find uh get his life back together um so yeah, Jim remembers he even remembers going to the to the uh headquarters of the uh Communist Party, the the newspaper where my father was also working as an editor, the Michigan Herald and then the Michigan Worker, he remembers some of that, um, much more so than I do. There's one scene also where he remembers that after, immediately after my father was called to testify, there were stories in the newspapers there, and one of his friend's mothers um, said, you know, Jim's dad is a communist, and that was sort of... Back, back off of that 1952
0: sure. and how did he find himself in the United States military uh, and what year did he go in and was he a communist then
1: um, he, he went in um, right after Pearl Harbor he uh, enlisted um, he wasn't a member of the communist party he was definitely a leftist I would say Um my mother's brother, Robert Cummins, was a member of the Communist Party, um, and uh, but you know, so he he wanted to fight against Hitler and and uh, Mussolini and and joined the war effort, um, and you know, one of the m- wonderful or important illuminating. Uh, parts of my book in terms of understanding my dad were the that he wrote all these letters home to my mother during that whole period from from 1941 to 1945. Hundreds of letters. And they're, you know, of course they have some typical romance and other things in them, but they're also very illuminating in terms of the way he viewed the world. and And particularly once he was able to to show what his leadership skills as a commander of that all-black unit. Um, And you see in those letters, and I would argue you also see in the many essays, which we'll get to later, in editorials he wrote when he was at the Michigan Daily as a student. I think you see his love of America throughout that period. Um, And, you know, his belief in not in destroying America, but in making it better, what would it have
0: meant to be a communist in nineteen thirty nine versus a communist in nineteen fifty two
1: That's an excellent question, and I think it meant different things um, by nineteen thirty nine the, there were there was already vast evidence of the evils of the Soviet Union um, but it was there were a lot of different factors involved. One was uh, the Spanish Civil War, which we can also talk about, which had just ended, um, where um, the United States and France and Great Britain were neutral, um, and it was uh, really the the Communist Party was part of the effort to defeat Franco and Hitler and uh, Mussolini in Spain, and this important precursor to World War II. Um, so there was that there was also during the war itself the Soviet Union and the United States were allies um fighting against Hitler um and so that was a different period as well by 1952 the cold war was you know you were deep into the cold war um there was also a a war going on in Korea against the communists there and so it was a different it was a different matter and um I think that the the uh Members of the Communist Party in the United States, the membership had shrunk considerably from 1939 to 1952. Um, many uh, leftists had turned away from the party by then. So my parents, there were people who continued after that. My parents uh, did not, but they did longer than I would have thought.
0: You, you mentioned Charles Potter, who was a Republican. Yes member of the HUAC committee, right. but in most of those years HUAC was, the committee was run by Democrats, although a couple of years were Republicans. Uh, what's his story? Because you write him up in here.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I found Charles Potter to be a very interesting um, study. Um, he was a classic uh, Main Street Midwesterner from, nor- from Michigan, uh, not the Upper Peninsula, but the northern part of Michigan. Um, went off to fight in World War II, uh, fought uh, as an officer um, through the Battle of the Bulge and then the Colmar Pocket where he was severely uh, wounded and ended up uh, losing both legs and one of his testicles and uh, heroically trying to work uh, uh, stop a, a, a pocket of Germans there and stepped on a landmine. Um, and um, so he came back, like so many veterans, um, to uh, to their home states and towns, and and got involved in politics as one of those young veterans. Um, was elected to Congress, um, put on the House Un-American Activities Committee, um, much like Richard Nixon or a lot of those other other young veteran congressmen. They sort of made their name fighting communism. They were staunch anti-communists. Um, during this, uh, the period of, of 1952, when the hearings were held in Detroit, um, he was starting to run for the Senate. Uh, Potter. Potter Charles was. Peter. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. And um, and uh, was elected uh, at the end of that year, served one term. But in the Senate, he was put on the subcommittee, uh, uh, with Joe McCarthy. And that's where he started to see sort of the uh, the different machinations and manipulations of McCarthy and the complexity of a lot of the issues that to, before that to him had seemed pretty uh, black and white. Um, so jump forward to the 1960s, he wrote a book called Days of Shame, where he acknowledged a lot of the mistakes that that the Republicans made during that period Allowing McCarthy to go as far as he did, he even writes a section where he defends the Fifth Amendment and, and regrets that he that it was used as a way of of of, of saying people were guilty and it, when it's a it's, it's a an important right. Um, so I you know it, I'm not going to this is the only time I'll jump forward unless you ask me about it again, but. Um, It was the Republicans, Margaret Chase Smith, um, several other Republicans, including President Eisenhower, who saw the excesses of what was going on, and they stopped it. Um, Days of shame. Will a Republican 10 years from now write a book like that?
0: When you look back, it's hard to believe Joe McCarthy was 48 when he died. Yeah. Buried in...
1: In Appleton, Wisconsin. In your home state? Yes. He died right before our family was saved when we got
0: to Wisconsin. I want to show you some uh, video of Harry Truman speaking. This is only 20 seconds. Okay. And get to another issue that you sure. sent me to in your book. Here's ah. Harry Truman fifty, nineteen fifty. 1950. Now I'm going to tell you how we're not going to fight communism. We're not going to transfer, transform our fine FBI into a Gestapo secret police. That's what some people would like to do. We're not going to try to control what our people read and say and think. That was 1950, yeah. but I go back. You, you sent me to this. I okay. It's Executive Order 9835 mm-hmm. from March the 21st, 1947. Harry Truman's president, and he issues his executive order. Whereas it is of vital importance that persons employed in the federal service be of complete and unswavering Loyalty to the United States, and i 'll jump down to mm-hmm. part one one, there should be a loyalty investigation of every person entering the civilian employment of any department or agency of the executive branch of the federal government. It goes on and mm-hmm. on, but what was this about? Put this in context
1: and you know it wasn't just the federal government. there were loyalty laws going all the way down through the state governments the the uh, Boards, uh, boards of education, teachers were uh, in states were, were ordered to sign loyalty oaths. Um, many of them refused and were were fired. Um, but it was it was the it was the uh, the intense hysteria, you might say, at least fear of the Cold War and of 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 an internal threat to the United States that that uh, just washed over this country in that period. Um, And Harry Truman and the Democrats were caught in a place that they've basically been dealing with in various ways ever since, which is the conundrum of how do you um, uphold the civil liberties which, which are at the heart of the American democracy and yet not be accused of being soft on whatever, communism or the enemies within and without, and so on, and so... You know, during that period, he, he made strong—I hadn't seen that statement before. Thanks for showing it. Um, he made that, and he also went the other way. You know, they were trying to find their way through this this uh, difficult period.
0: I want to ask you further on in this executive order that this is one of his yeah. points. What would, this, what would happen with this today? Mm. The head of each department and agency shall appoint one or more loyalty boards— each composed of not less than three representatives of the department or the agency concerned for the purpose of hearing loyalty cases arising within such department or agency and making recommendations with respect to the removal of any officer and employee of such department or agency on the grounds relating to loyalty.
1: Well, that's chilling, isn't it? And um, especially when you think about how that could be—how not only it was um, misused during that period— um, and there's something, parts of that that aren't even in my book, like the Lavender Scare, how they went after um, gay uh, and lesbian people during that same period, for you know, in the same ways, uh, in the federal government. Um, but uh, loyalty to what, and to whom? Who defines it? And and you know how how that can be, you know, how it was defined then in terms of. Loyalty to America versus the Soviet Union? What, what were, you know, what, is it loyalty in your mind, in your writing, or is it loyalty in your actions, um, which are two very different things? And, and the ways that that was misused and can, could be misused in the present is, is chilling. Reaction of
0: Jeannie and Jim, your brother and sister, to when they knew you were doing this mm. and what you found?
1: Um, That was a really interesting and important process. Um, So for the whole period that my parents were alive, I was not going to write this book, and it was not something my father and my mother really talked about much. Um, And when I really started to become obsessed with it, I was talking to my sister and brother. Um, Jeannie was... Supportive from the beginning. She might have had qualms about what I would find, but she she never would she's not the type of person She's just very supportive of me always um, Jim it was a little more complicated um, He I think in part because he Was conscious during this period and maybe felt it was more his story than mine um, I was just two uh, what did I know? I think he underestimated, perhaps, my research capacity to find, you know, he'd say, like, what, what can you really know about what my parents were thinking? Well, after you read 200 letters from my father and 200 editorials and essays and stories that he wrote for the Michigan Daily, you start to get a pretty good sense of what he was thinking. Not entirely, of course, because no biographer ever knows the internal thoughts of another human being. I mean... You don't know what I'm thinking at this moment, you know, and nor do I know what you're thinking because there's contradictory thoughts that flow through people. But in any case, so Jim was pretty much. He'll now say that he didn't try to talk me out of it, but I felt that he was trying to talk me out of it. Pretty yes. Where are those two today? Jim is. uh, uh, He lives in uh, Western Massachusetts. He was a professor for decades at Amherst University. Professor of Spanish, including the Spanish Civil War, Spanish literature was a Calderon uh, specialist. Um, my and uh, he just retired. My sister lives in Pittsburgh. She was the chief uh, research librarian at Carnegie Mellon University.
0: We need to talk about that Spanish War because uh, your uncle, yeah. fought in it, and you spent a little bit of time telling us about it. Bob Cummins.
1: Bob Cummins, my mother's older brother, oldest brother. Um, and he was radicalized at the University of Michigan. Um, And the day he graduated in 1937, he and two of his friends, Ralph Niefus and Elman Service, left Michigan uh, to New York, got on a boat, um, took the boat across to France, took a train across France, uh, to the Spanish border, climbed over the Pyrenees into Spain to fight uh, with the International Brigade against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. What Mo- was motivating him? Ideology, politics, uh, a hatred of fascism. Um, and uh, it was most of the most of the Americans and Canadians who went over there had some, or two-thirds of them, had some affiliation with the Young Communist League, um, And so you can say, you know, that that was financially what brought— they didn't make money off of this, of course, but that's how they got there. Um, But what was driving them was a belief in a better egalitarian world and a hatred of of fascism.
0: What happened to him after that?
1: Well, he was there um, from 37 until the uh, Americans were sent home a little bit before the war ended, with Franco defeating the the uh, loyalists, the Republicans, um, and he came back to Ann Arbor with Elman's service. Now, and the third member of that group, Ralph Neffus, was captured by Franco's troops and executed. And if you don't mind, I, you know, when we when my wife and I were in Spain, one of the most powerful moments was oh, I knew where he was captured and the cathedral where he and some other American soldiers were held in Alcaniz, in the cathedral on the top of the town, and to go there into that church, you know, all these 70 plus years later, um, and uh, it still felt like a, a dungeon of, of death. Um, it was very moving experience to, 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 to do that and, and to trace his route all the way through Spain So after he came home um, He was hailed at the University of Michigan He and Elman um, for surviving the war And for what they had done There were 400 or 500 people came to an event at the Michigan Union His little sister, Mary Cummins, my mother, was there a uh, reporter for the Michigan Daily, Elliot Marinus, covered the event, and that's where my parents met. That day? Yes.
0: Let's go back to that photograph just briefly to look at your mother and, and uh, father. And I want to ask you that both of them had the philosophy of the Communist Party at that time. Where did they get it from? I mean, in other words, what were their parents like? And did they, was that where they, The the atmosphere they grew up in? You
1: know, they were—my um, mother was a member of the Young Communist League, but I think to say they had the philosophy of the Communist Party is a little bit narrowing in terms of what, they, what their philosophy of life was. Um, I'm not trying to deny it in any way. I'm just saying that there was more to it than but that. I'm more interested but in knowing where, where, where their philosophy yeah, came okay. from. <laughs> well, um, I would say that to some extent my mother was uh, influenced by her older brother, Bob, um, who was uh, already active in Michigan and then went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Where did he get it? He, good question. I mean, I think from the Times, partly. Um, my grandparents, my mother and Bob Cummins's father, Andrew Adair Cummins, um, was born on the side of a hill in, in uh, northwestern Kansas, um, went through the, the whole uh, struggle of the Depression as a young engineer, bounced from city to city trying to get work. Um, he started sort of, you might say, as a modestly country club Republican and was not radicalized, but became an FDR supporter during the the New Deal and, and all of that. Um, but I would say that, that where my mother and Bob Cum and my uncle got it was from the times. I mean, I I think you can compare somewhat the period from 1934 to 1939 to the period from 1964 to 1969. A lot of young people were being radicalized by the events of of that era. Not everybody, obviously. Both then and in the 60s, there were more young Republicans than there were uh, radicals. But it was a radicalization process of a lot of people.
0: If we can do this quickly, I I just want to, for context purposes, at one point in the book you say seven moves, four kids, and the blacklist. Yeah. Where were the seven moves?
1: Well, uh, from the time he was fired in Detroit, um, our first move was to Coney Island, Brooklyn, where my grandparents, my father's parents, lived, we lived in a small apartment uh, on the edge of, uh, on near Seagate in Coney Island, but not in Seagate, which was a little more exclusive. Um, then we moved uh, back to, he, we moved back to Ann Arbor and lived with my mother's parents briefly. Then we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where he very briefly had a job with the Cleveland Plain Dealer until the publisher of that paper found out about Um, what had happened in Detroit, um, which my father readily acknowledged. He was fired from the plane dealer. We moved back to Detroit. Um, He worked outside of the newspaper industry for a few years, um, selling party favors for a a labor organizational place. We moved twice in Detroit. Then in 1956, Um, He was hired to be an editor at uh, the local edition of Labor's Daily in Bettendorf, Iowa. The typographical union was on strike against the newspapers in that area. And my father got back into newspapers there. Um, We were there for uh, a little over a year and then uh, got to Madison, and the Madison Capital Times hired him in 1957. Joe McCarthy had just died. The Milwaukee Braves were on their way to winning the World Series. I was a 7 turning 8, and life seemed good.
0: The consequences of that hearing, did, that, did they find him to be in contempt or whatever? Whatever? What happened as a result of those HUAC hearings? Uh,
1: no. Um, there, there were many people over the course of the years who um, did not take the Fifth Amendment, but took the First Amendment, cited their First Amendment rights, and they were cited for contempt. Um, You can't cite someone for contempt for taking the Fifth Amendment. That's a constitutional right um, covered by that. Uh, But if you try to claim the First Amendment, you're not covered. So people ranging from Arthur Miller, who we haven't talked about, the great, great playwright, who coincidentally went to Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn before my father, then went to the University of Michigan before my father, was a friend of of my uncle Bob Cummins and a very close friend of Ralph Nefus, the other Spanish Civil War veteran who was killed during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, years later, uh, Arthur Miller was called before HUAC because he had had a communist past, and he didn't take the Fifth Amendment, and he but he refused to answer, or he didn't answer, he didn't refuse. He was asked a question in sort of the subject turned away from that, but he never answered it. He wouldn't name names; he would only talk about himself, and he was cited for contempt, um, as were the Hollywood Ten back in nineteen forty seven who did not take the Fifth Amendment but stood up and said they had the right as first freedom of speech, and they were all cited for contempt and and imprisoned. your father's lawyer, George Crockett, yeah. Congressman? I didn't know any of that until I started researching this book. George Crockett later became a congressman from Detroit. Um, he was part of a, a, a integrated law firm in Detroit before there were any really anywhere else. And uh, he he was a leftist, but not a communist ever. Um, but he believed deeply in protecting the rights of controversial minority groups, because he said, you know, if they go after, you know, the same rights are due to members of the Communist Party as have been denied to African Americans. And so he saw a connection between the two. He wrote a a uh, statement called, Freedom is Everyone's Everybody's Business. And, and that was his strong sort of manifesto defense of why he was defending communists, even if he didn't agree with them, because he saw the same dangers that uh, could go against anyone else. The former mayor of uh, Detroit, Coleman Young. You know, you could write a whole book about him, so I, I didn't make him a major character, but but he, uh, he was called before the committee during those same hearings in 1952 as my father, had the same lawyer, George Crockett, and Coleman Young turned those hearings on end. Um... He he was not a member of the Communist Party. He was friendly with a lot of communists and, and part of the radical movement uh, earlier in the United Auto Workers. But when they called him, he really didn't know how to deal with somebody who was not afraid of them like that. And so both Chairman Wood and Frank Tavener, uh, from, Tavener from Virginia, um, Wood from Georgia, both had Southern accents and Southern sensibilities. They both come out of racist backgrounds, and so when they said or tried to say "negro," which was what blacks were called then, whether subconsciously or consciously, it would come out nigra. Coleman Young went nuts against that and and, and said that's you know you, that's not how you pronounce it. Um, it's "negro," not Nigra. Um, and and then, from then on, sort of developed more and more control over the the questioning um, so that he wasn't taking anything from them about you know any of those issues uh, you know about you know what it meant to be an American when when, when he and millions of 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 African Americans were second class citizens denied the right to vote, he talked about his experiences in World War two when he was kicked out of an officer's club, even though he was an officer because he was black. Um, he really sort of made a powerful argument against them. And when it was over, uh, he said, he told this to Studs Turkle later, who interviewed him, and he said, walking through the streets of Detroit, it was like Joe Lewis coming home from a fight. You know, at barber shops, walking down the street, everybody was patting me on the back saying, you know, you stood up to those Southern racists.
0: Here he is. Just a little 38-second clip talking about John Wood and others.
1: I took the trouble to look at at the record of all the persons on that committee, and
0: none of them had anything to be proud of. I'd forgotten the chairman who was from Georgia.
1: Uh, But I checked him out, and his district consisted of about 80 percent blacks. And yet only 5 percent of the blacks in his district voted uh, in an election in which he was elected. And so I decided that the best way to—you had either to—either you run from these guys and you cringe or you attack. That was
0: 1988. Uh-huh. Uh, what's happened, do you think, since then to this day about voting in places like Georgia?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's different, but—I the I mean, it's a different context, but there's still voter suppression um in states all over this country now and it's one thing that i've never quite i mean i understand it in terms of power politics but in terms of a reverence for democracy why does this country that that upholds itself as the beacon of liberty throughout the world and of democracy repress the democratic process and the ability to vote um, so it's not like then when there was poll taxes, although it's getting close in some states.
0: I w- want to put on our screen the, some people that you write about in the book from HUAC, the chairman. Here's mm-hmm. Martin Dies. Uh, <laughs> tell us about him.
1: Well, he was the first chairman of the committee from Texas and uh, was... Um, a blatant racist. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say too much more. But uh, the 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 earliest members of that committee um, were. It was dominated by southern racists.
0: Let's look at John Rankin from What's
1: Mississippi. It? Similar, and he was he was even more blatant. Where you know, in the congressional record, you can see him calling Jews kikes and and blacks niggers. Did you know anything about this before you got into the research? Not. I mean, I. I I knew vaguely about sort of that history, but I didn't I didn't really know it. No. Jay Parnell Thomas. Well, he was a a, a Republican chairman of the committee um, who um, was the chairman of the committee during the Hollywood Ten hearings, upholding uh, what it means to be an American and calling these screenwriters and others un-American. And shortly after that, he was convicted of an, of some embezzling uh, in his New Jersey congressional office, and he ended up in the same prison uh, as uh, Ring Lardner Jr., who was one of the Hollywood Ten. John Wood, John Stevens Wood, is a major character in in a figure in this book, the chairman uh, in 1952, uh, congressman from North Jersey from North uh, Georgia, who. Um, after World War One, had briefly joined the Ku Klux Klan. And in another um, incident that I only came across uh, during the research, although there's a wonderful book about the lynching of Leo Frank by my friend Steve Oney. Um, Leo Frank was a Atlanta industrialist, uh, had ran a pencil factory, and he was accused of murdering a 13-year-old uh, girl in his pencil factory uh, it was, by all his records and accounts, uh, a frame-up. He he was innocent, but he was convicted. And then the governor of Georgia, after a lot of pressure, a lot of coverage of it in the New York Times and elsewhere, in this was 1913, um, he commuted the the uh, death sentence. And the people of Marietta, Georgia, the leaders of Marietta, Georgia, took it upon themselves to break him out of prison, and then lynch him. The leader of that effort was a local judge named Newt Morris, and Newt Morris's chief disciple who drove the car that carried Leo Frank's lynched body after the lynching was John Stevens Wood, the future chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Your parents lived for how long? Um, my father uh, lived to age 86. He died in 2004. My mother lived to age 84, died in 2006. They only She only lived a year and a half after he was gone.
0: And what was their life like in their last, say, 20 years?
1: Well, um, I think their life from 1957 on, when he got to Madison, was i don 't want to be simplistic, but it was a life of a good american family they were They were wonderful parents um the, Our house was full of music and books and friendship. They were open to the world as I write in the book. My father, by the time I was conscious, taught me to not fall for any rigid ideology, to be open to humans of all sorts, to hate the message, not the person, uh, if it was a you know racism or whatever um and he he was a he succeeded as a journalist in Madison. Eventually became the editor of the Capital Times, the progressive paper in that city. My mother went back to school, uh, was Phi Beta Kappa uh, at the University of Wisconsin. Then became a book editor. Um, for to jump forward to the last twenty years of their lives, I mean, my father retired at age sixty-five. Um, my mother would go on to teach literacy to 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 immigrants and poor people and they moved to Milwaukee from Madison. My dad said only half jokingly that he didn't want to wake up every day after he retired and re-edit the newspaper so he moved a little bit away. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd go visit them in, in Milwaukee and there'd be a stack of 20 books on the couch that my father had checked out of the library that he was reading. They they, they had nine grandchildren along with the Uh, their kids, and uh, that was their life, a good American family life.
0: We have a a book out called The Presidents, and your interview that we did here years ago on your book um, on Bill Clinton is in there, but it was before he became president. Yes. How does it stand up, in your opinion, to this day?
1: Well, I think that the central um, threads of that book hold up. Uh, and the, I would say there were, there were two central themes of the book. One was that with Bill Clinton, you can't separate the good from the bad. They're all part of the same human being. Um, and the same uh, sort of motivations that drive him, in a better sense, drive him uh, into difficulty as well, uh, complicated in that sense and maybe an exaggeration of, of all of us. Um, Sometimes, well, often for the worse, sometimes for the better. Um, and uh, the other thread is that um, uh, loss and recovery. When he's down, he'd find his way up. When he's up, he'd find his way down. Uh, cycle again and again. I think when I talked to you in probably 1995, it was before Monica Lewinsky, it was before the impeachment. And yet, I I think I talked then about that cycle of loss and recovery, and and you see that time and again all the way through his presidency and through his post presidency. Um, you know, I think in in the current era of twenty eighteen twenty nineteen of the Me Too movement, there's there's a somewhat of a reassessment of of his behavior uh, towards women, and I think that's totally justified. And it was the the uh, the uh, achilles heel of bill clinton
0: you did a book on barack obama mm-hmm. when did the text on that and what at what point in his life
1: <laughs> that was even uh i mean clinton's my book on clinton i'm fascinated by people's the formations what shapes them why they are the way they are and i go back to look at that so with with bill clinton it, it ended the day he announced for president uh, in little rock arkansas in 1991 I didn't even get close to that I, I and I hope to write a second volume uh, long after his book comes out and after there's archives at the at his presidential library um, but the first book was really an attempt to to do two things one really study the world that shaped him and how he reshaped himself how he how he found his way and so that book ends the day he drives off to Harvard to go to law school when he you can see his political future for me i right.
0: want to show you some video of an earlier interview um not by you okay and uh this is a moment that uh see if you can get get some more response out of you okay. let's, let's watch sure. this and yeah. it all makes sense to you this is a tweet right from david marinus i know you've seen this we'll put it up on the screen We'll say this only once. David Garrow, author of New Obama Bio, was vile, undercutting, ignoble competitor unlike any I've encountered. What's that about? I do not know. Uh, You you know David No, he he says encountered. I've never met or spoken with David Moranis. Zero. No interaction whatsoever. Uh, You know, to me, this is a sort of, you know, Trump-like people getting angry on Twitter it's uh, someone they don't know. David Garrow, as you know, wrote a book on uh, Barack Obama, and uh, that was a tweet that you sent out. Can you help us?
1: Um, somewhat. I mean, I said it, only say it once. I'm not going to say those words again. I will say that I have uh, respect for David Garrow and what he does, not for the way he behaved as a, as a uh, researcher or, or writer. Um, I've spent my whole year competing against reporters at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, um, and even doing books that other uh, writers are doing. And never before I had encountered someone who went out of his way to tell sources not to talk to me because I wouldn't get it right, and only he would. He did that time and again, undercutting not just me, but also David Remnick, who was doing a a, uh, biography of, of Obama at the same time it was it was mind-boggling why he not only did he do it then but then in his own book he, he goes on to criticize uh Remnick and myself again for what reason what was i i i just found it as i i mean I, I use those words i don't regret them i again i don't he says we never encounter each other well no but i, I certainly encountered him through the sources i was dealing with who would call me up or write me and say the scarrow guy just said this about you um, I'd never had that before, and that's what happened.
0: What would be your approach if you went back and wrote another book on uh, Barack Obama?
1: Well, I, I mean, my, I what would be my approach? I, I mean, mean what,
0: what would you, what aspect of his life uh, would you like to write about specifically?
1: Oh well, I, I mean, I, I think I would take it from where I left off. Um, the first book, as I said, you know, it was not just about Barack Obama; it was about. Uh, his father, his mother, where you know, Hawaii, Kenya, um, Indonesia. I'm satisfied with all of that, um, and but um, to take it through from from that point through the Illinois legislature to his presidency, um, and looking at both the choices and compromises, and. Uh, path he had to follow to get all the way to the presidency would be my next book
0: You said that the possibility when you started the title of this book instead of A Good American Family would have been Room 740 Judgment in Room 740, yeah. yes Is Room 740 still there? And have you gone to
1: it? <laughs> I've been in that building um, uh, Well, Parts of it were, were, were moved to a new building um, So I, that room is not there anymore, no
0: have you had any reaction from your siblings about this book yet?
1: Uh, my brother, who had questions about it, has been very positive. He's read it several times. And, um, and uh, they're both rooting for me. And, and you know, a, a lot of my cousins—I mean, there are cousins in the book, too, who were very important. Uh, Bob Cummins' daughters, um, other cousins— Uh, I sent it to all of them and told them this is coming. You know, this is not, this is a family history that really hadn't been told before. It was also important for Madison to know this story, Madison, Wisconsin, where my father was well-known. They didn't really, most of the people there didn't know this part of his story. We'll see what happens. The reception so far has been really warm.
0: Let's look at the cover of the book, and I want you to tell me where the picture was taken. Uh, And I assume that's,
1: you know, isn't it interesting to see that house in the background? When I first saw it, I thought, is that a a phony photo? And then I started studying the, the Statue of Liberty photos from that era, and that that house is further back than it looks, but it is on the island. So we are visiting the Statue of Liberty shortly after uh, we left Detroit after my father was, was called before the committee. Um, and, you know, it's my parents... My dad with his arm around Jim, my older brother. I'm the little guy in the shorts blinking into the sun goofily with, uh, and then Jeannie and my mother. And, you know, the Statue of Liberty uh, lifesaver there, and it was just that's a family picture that we've always had. It just sort of, it was like waiting for this book.
0: Other than the document you found, we've only got a 30 seconds uh, at the archives what was the other big find for you
1: well my father's uh, FBI records uh, including um, the military intelligence report where I discovered that one of my colleagues at the Washington Post Morton Mintz had been investigated I mean interviewed by the military intelligence um, and asked whether my father should be a member of uh, an officer in the military and Morton now it says it was the biggest shame of his life, but he basically said negative things about my dad.
0: Title of the book, as we said, A Good American Family, and our author has been David Marinus, not Maranus. <laughs> and I thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be interviewed by you. <laughs>
0: Q&A programs are available on our website or as
1: a podcast at c